Welcome to Kansas City Real Talk, brought to you by KCRR. I'm Bobby Howe. I'm Alex Gehring. What's up, Alex? Oh, not a whole lot. It's July. How did that happen? I mean, on some levels, it still feels like it's like February, other than it's nice outside. Like this year is just like... I've always heard it growing up. It time goes by faster the older you get. But I mean, I'm, I'm mid forty. I'm solid mid forties now, and it's just it's going even faster than it ever has before. Yeah, I'm just what is happening? Yeah. So you know, talked a little bit about your 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 ticking and your talking. Uh huh. Yeah. And uh, the fact that you said you were on the last episode. Said, was that last episode? Yeah, I, it was, I was last like, yeah, episode. Episode. that yeah, was the last episode. Yeah. Um, it's just a blur to me at this point that <clears throat> that you were never coming back to it because it was, right. a, it was a time waster for you. Yep. So have you um, substituted in a um, a different no. technology? No. No. And and so, to be clear, it, it wasn't a time waster. It was an addiction. Okay. No, and that's it, I think it's, that's it's a, taking it to a whole other level. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think it's a it's so yeah. important to to not make light of it mm-hmm. and I, I'm completely serious it was an addiction yeah I reached for my phone before I would even know it mm-hmm. I was pulling down typing in TI and clicking on TikTok and I was scrolling away yeah and then I've, I've got to get rid of Instagram too right. that is probably the next thing I have to get rid of there is something about that um, that is so um, and I, I know I'm not alone in this there's something about that that is just so compelling to start Mm -hmm. and then that but it's a legitimate dopamine trigger right when it when it just nails it for you and it feeds you exactly what you want in that moment because it does look at his face light up it's crazy saying this like i can feel it it is so unhealthy though we we used to have to seek out and and research and kind of try to define exactly what it is that we want or try to look into things that we want to know versus things that are just going to feed in the confirmation bias. And that is what it is. I mean, I'm not – anybody that knows me knows that most of the time – well, it was the corn kid uh, that that threw me off of it. Three episodes of the corn kid now. The the algorithm was not feeding me corn kid stuff, but it was feeding feeding me policy wonk stuff. And and, I mean, I'm serious. And so – the way that uh, that th- those kinds of things w- were hitting me, I found myself not really doing the right work on that. Right. I was I was citing things that I'd see on TikTok, and, and and I'm not saying that what I was seeing was inaccurate, but it was a single perspective. Right. Right. And, and it was the perspective that I, of course, already agreed with because that's what it likes to feed you, unless it's just trying to make you mad for fun. And again, yeah. not exaggerating here, that is how the thing is built. It's so unhealthy. Yeah. Um, and it's an issue that we're going to see with ChatGPT as well. well I really, I, I really believe that it is because it, it will do the same thing. It already does. It learns what it is that you're looking for, and it feeds that to you. Um, and it's a it's a risk. Well, and that's where I actually was going. We are we are brain connected. We've been doing this long enough. That's actually where I was going when I you know. I asked the question, I went back to TikTok, because when we, when we look at all of the adoption rates and how long it took to get to a million users mm-hmm. on the platform, and I've seen the data, and I can't remember it off the top of my head, so I'm not even going to attempt, but you know, Facebook took the longest, then Instagram came along, and it was like half the time or something like that, then TikTok came along, and it was even just this even sh- crazy short time, 
But then t- uh, ChatGBT was like two days to get to a million users. Like, it was like 14 days. But I mean, it was some crazy short amount of time where we're just adopting these technologies even faster than we've ever adopted them ever before. And the ways that we're exploiting them and using them, um, it, it was it was. Was really curious to me is um, I, I talked about in the last episode that I had just come from the Lake of the Ozarks and did a strat planning retreat with the Missouri Realtors. Mm-hmm. Um, what I didn't talk about is while we were there and we were doing this, one of the activities we did together as a group was to come up with shared values. And we spent two days coming up with words that would be shared values. And we narrowed it down and narrowed it down. And we got it down to five words that we all agreed were core values for the state association. And Just as we all know, number one was advocate or advocacy, and we talked about that, and we had some other words. Well, then the the last exercise was to come up with a sentence describing uh, Missouri Realtors and whatever that value was. We are advocates, blah, 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 blah. And the guy next to me is like, well, let's just put it into to chat GPT. How do Missouri realtors advocate? And we came out with this. The first one was just, it was a shorter like sentence long. And as we did the words, it was pulling up words and putting them into the sentences of other concepts that were on the board, but didn't make it down to the final five words. But it was taking some of those, con- like, because it had been listening yeah. the entire time we were there. And everybody was like, oh, my gosh, that's so good. That's so good. Those sentences. It's chat GPT, guys. I know it's very wordy and it needed to right. be narrowed down. But just I, but just now using it to craft our state association. Mm. But but let's let's talk about that. Like that that's the reason why I think that the I already feel like the hype surrounding chat GPT is starting to calm down a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think that it's still extremely prevalent. Uh, but I think uh, a lot of things are are starting to uh, to calm. I think the biggest reason for that is because the primary user of ChatGPT, the primary users are people who do not need it. No. People who are more than capable of writing. You all, as the committee, could have come up with something just as good and just as beautiful. There isn't any question about that. You just sped it up. The reality is that that's what it mostly is Mm -hmm. in its current form, is a time saver for people who can already do the work. So it's... There's still an accessibility barrier there for a lot of people. Uh, honestly, there are a lot of people that still don't have great internet, right? right. Uh, there yes. are a lot of people who um, who wouldn't be able to formulate the correct prompts because there is a, a science to mm-hmm. putting those prompts in and doing it effectively and understanding how the thing works. Um, but mostly the people who really need it, who can't, uh, who, who aren't uh, so great with words or, or who maybe haven't had the education uh, that uh, some of some others have had to be able to formulate things in a, in a beautiful way. Um, they're not the ones that are using chat GPT yet. And so we get to that point. Mm-hmm. I don't see it um, as as that big of a breakthrough. Otherwise, it's just speeding up the people who already have uh, advantages that are socioeconomic, education based or otherwise. Yeah. And so it's. Uh, uh, it just it's it's one more imbalance to me. Yeah, I mean it's it's funny you brought up just even internet access and this has nothing to do with anything. And yet I thought it was funny because it made me think of it. Um, those meetings we were at at Lake of the Ozarks and I talked on the last episode about how dated the Lodge of Four Seasons was. Mm-hmm. My hotel room was like at the end of a hallway. I couldn't get Wi-Fi in my room. 
<laughs> I was like, what do you mean there's no Wi-Fi in my yeah. room? She's like, it's too far away and we don't have extenders and you can't. I was like, how do I, how am I in a, here for two nights in my hotel room and I don't have, I and I needed to do work. So there I am tethering my phone to my laptop right. just to do work. But I'm like, it is 2023. How does my hotel room but you realize, not have Wi-Fi? And I'm it, so privileged. That's that's 70% of the geography of the state of Kansas. Yeah. Like that's what that's and and, and we're not the only state where right. where that's an issue. Like internet accessibility is is there, yeah, but it isn't. Uh, you know, it's like being on T-Mobile with one bar. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. It isn't. It isn't that Google that Google stuff. And, and I don't have that. the patience for that. No, I, I don't have patience for one bar. I mean, wow. uh, we actually just watched um, the movie Air about the Nike oh, and so the Jordans. Good. Oh my gosh, that's such a great movie. But because it's in the time frame that it was, like, there's all the montages to everything that was going on there uh, when Jordan was being drafted and that and, and Stockton. I mean, even talking about the classes that were were being that. The AOL sign and then the sound came up and I was like, oh, my God, taking me back to because my house, that was 1997. I was a senior in high school and we were one of the first people in my entire high school to have the Internet. And like 10 people would come to my house and we would just sit around this tiny little computer screen and we would do the dial up of the. You've got mail. And it was so exciting. And th- I mean, this is even back in the days where you only had so many minutes on the internet. And so we had like a little piece of paper oh, right next yeah. to the computer. And we were, okay, we were on there for 15 minutes. We've used 15 of our 100-minute allotment. Things that my child and probably you never had to experience or understand in any way, shape, or form that internet was like a limited quantity of <laughs> much you got of it so um highly recommend watching air just even for the soundtrack and for just the take back to the 80s and yeah. what it was or 90s and what that was like during um that time so we we had dial up until i was 14 whoa seriously that's crazy and everybody around i mean because the yeah. i grew up pretty far south just like pretty far up there north and we didn't have all that, you know, all that fancy stuff. Yeah. You know, I lived on five acres. We didn't get, we didn't get fiber. Wi-Fi. Yeah. What got to happen? Fiber was something you ate. That's right. <laughs> it was I, through your I yard. had to live on it. And if I wanted to research something at, yeah. at home, I had to use uh, Encyclopedia Britannica. Did on, you really I have I had encyc- to use that CD. Okay, so you didn't really have encyclopedias. No, 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 no. of course I had an encyclopedia. I really had encyclopedia. We had the whole set in books that took up like a whole entire room. Oh, well, we didn't – mine didn't take up the entire room. Well, I didn't take up the entire room, but it was (laughs) – you're talking about encyclopedias on CD. Like that was like digitized. Well, that's what I'm saying. We couldn't like just Google stuff that easily. So we had to use the Encyclopedia Britannica CD-ROM. It's crazy. It's still a little bit more advanced than using like actual encyclopedias like I did, pulling them well, out I and flipping through pages. A, I know how to use an encyclopedia. I didn't say you didn't know how to use it. <laughs> it was the fact that you didn't have to use them. No, I didn't. I no, didn't. you didn't. Nope. Yeah. It's, yep. That's, a, that's right. a part of that's that right. uh, 12-year age gap right. we've got going on yep. here. Yep. Mm-hmm. All right. So we probably need to tell our uh, our nice, amazing listeners who our guest is going to be today. Alex, who's coming on today? 
Today, we've got Shelby Bartelt. Uh, she's a KCRR industry partner and a loan officer with Bay Equity Home Loans. She's going to talk with us today about loan level pricing adjustments, which some of y'all have gone completely crazy uh, talking about. Yeah, yeah. And, and a lot of you are wrong. So we're <laughs> going to tell you. <laughs> we're going to tell you how to be right. Yeah. Look, it's not a political thing, number no. one. That's where we're going to start. Uh, and, and these have been around for a long time. So so I, I, I think that you guys are going to get a lot of information about LLPAs um, and uh, and clear up some of the controversy just a little bit. Yeah, People still ought to be buying houses. What? Right? Yes. Yeah. Poppy, you got a book bit? <laughs> you know I do. <laughs> do, 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 Bobby's book bit. I picked the high key. I noticed that. And I can't do that. Casey. Okay. So. My book bit for today is Automate Your Busy Work by Atkin Tank, and it's a step-by-step guide to getting rid of your most dreaded tasks. Wouldn't we all like to just get rid of all of those dreaded tasks? And my favorite quote from the book is, your productivity is not the problem. The problem is thinking you need to personally do every iota of work that lands on your plate. And I think that is a problem for most Realtors, especially solo agents who don't have an admin, who don't have a buyer's agent, who maybe their office doesn't offer any sort of administrative or task assistance. And there's a certain security blanket that comes with that busyness and Mm -hmm. busyness makes me feel um, successful. So there are three lessons to the book, just like always. Lesson number one is you need to separate your meaningful work from your busy work and audit the latter. So um, to find this clarity, it talks about taking 15 minutes to write down your most dreaded tasks. Um, And you're already going to have an idea. And the initial fix-it list is a great starting place. But spend the second half of that time asking questions. What do you enjoy doing the most? What would you like to save your brain power for? And what delivers the most impact? Um, This actually is a task every time I've hired an employee, I've told them from the onset, and this is way before I even read this book to know it was a thing, is I want you to create two lists. I want a list of all the tasks you absolutely love doing, and I want a list of tasks that you absolutely hate doing. Because I know you're going to rush first and do the things you most love doing, and you're going to put off doing the things you don't like to do. So when we're successful and we hire the next person who's going to join our organization, we're going to hire them to do those tasks you don't like to do so that you're bought into our success so that you know you eventually get to hand off those tasks you don't like to do. So it's a similar concept, but not exactly the same with this book. Um, And then it talks about next doing a busy work audit to figure out which thing you can automate first. Um, And so there are four things that you can um, look at when you're doing this audit. And first is hourly. Pause after every hour of work to write down how valuable the activity was and how you felt about it. The second step to this is periodic. Stop at three to four different inflection points throughout the day and note your frustrations, how much time you spent in the flow, which is just things moving and going forward, and then what unexpected tasks stopped you first. 
then the next step is to take it to daily and then take about 10 minutes at the end of your day to write down whether you accomplished what you wanted to or not. Or the fourth one is comparison. At the end of the day, take some notes on how you plan to spend the day versus how you actually did it. So whichever way is going to work best for you, I'm kind of the comparison person. Like I like to wake up in the morning and think, okay, this is what I'm going to accomplish today. And then at the end of the day, did I actually accomplish those things or what got into the way? And then lesson two is to understand the three-part automation flywheel. It's really technical, but it's not really. Um, To start eliminating busy work and making automation a way of life for you. And the model has um, three phases, and there's two steps to each one. But the first one is to divide and conquer. And that means identify why and how you feel overwhelmed, and then break down that task into a series of steps so that you can create a workflow from it. I mean, we always talk about people getting organized and creating processes, and this is exactly what this book will help you do. The second phase is to design and implement. So after drawing, you know, that visual map of your workflow, you have to implement automation using technology that will fit your criteria. And then finally, you're going to refine and iterate. And so once your automation's up and running, you want to define relevant metrics so you can measure its success to continue to test, change, and improve as you go. And what I really liked about this book as I got into it is that automation is an ongoing process. And I recently did the book bit for Kaizen, which is that Japanese um, philosophy of continuous improvement. And this book, it feeds right into that exact same thing. And then finally, lesson three, use automation to improve everything from your memory to your creativity, communication, and even peace of mind. Um, And so it said, start with something that's universal, um, such as email, specifically your email memory, and something as simple by saving email attachments so that you never have to resend things. So it talks about setting up an automation workflow so that anytime someone sends you an email with an attachment to it, that attachment automatically, you know, because if this, then that, it automatically saves that attachment into a specific folder that you've set up. And so you never, as I know me, I'm always going back and like, oh God, someone sent me an email. Who sent it? Where's it at? How long ago did they send it? And, you know, for my own personal stuff, I use Gmail, which I think Gmail's search function is amazing. And I can almost always find what I want. But with my new job, for our job, we use Outlook. I hate Outlook. I hate search functions with Outlook. Outlook can just go burn in a dark, deep hole because Outlook (laughs) has just made me absolutely hate using email. And I'm actually trying to press my organization to switch over to Google. Um, But it is, if you are using Outlook, and you might need some sort of automation because I can never go back and find the things that I need to find. So the, um, the book bit that we had here for you today was to automate your busy work by Atticon Tank. There is probably one little caveat there. You probably want to be careful with any kind of an automation that downloads every single attachment. Oh, yeah, good point. Yeah, because you know, yep. like there there are these like phishing schemes right. out there that might you know there's yeah. some there's some stuff out there. So very be valid point. With that. I yeah. like it. You know what? Oh, should we go get our guest? We should go find Shelby. Let's do it. Let's do it. Welcome back to Kansas City Real Talk, brought to you by KCRAR. Bobby and I are here with Shelby Bartelt, and it is so nice to meet you, Shelby. Thanks for being in here with us today. Thanks for having me. 
Absolutely. I'm really excited to talk about this subject because we've seen a ton in the media about it in the last several months. Um, And I think there's a ton of misinformation out there. Maybe the waters have calmed just a little bit, but people are still angry. We're just angry about everything right now. Yeah, we just find things to be mad about. So before we get into talking about LLPA, give us a little bit of your background as a loan officer. How did you get into lending? What's your background? And Absolutely. So I actually grew up in Florida, was living there and loving it, and then met my now husband, who was living in Columbia, Missouri, moved where uh, there was not a luxury hotel, which is my background. So actually got into the mortgage industry then about eight years ago and have been in it since and just absolutely love it. So I try to bring my background of client experience and education into the process. And, you know, it's been a wild ride these last uh 18 months to two years, but I'm excited to see where we go. Totally random, not what we're talking about, but how was the transition from Florida to Columbia? Uh, A culture shock, let's be honest. Um, For all the Mizzou listeners, Columbia is a lovely place, Uh, very different than Nashville and Orlando. So uh, when we relocated to Kansas City five years ago, I was, uh, my bags were packed, ready to come. Yeah. Well, I mean, at least we have worlds of fun. Is that like, is that comparable? Is that a thing? No? I haven't been yet. And Harry Potter world is by far, I mean, just... Okay, Shelby's the my best, new best friend ever. because that's a, we, are, we are universal people. We so are cool. not Disney people, yeah. and it's 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 the Harry Potter world and all of that is it's just it's my thing. Yes, butterbeer, you've got yeah. to have it. Yeah, it's yeah, so good. It's so good. It is. So, so we don't have that at Worlds of Fun. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so for so let's get back on track. Wow, we can squirrel like the best of them. Um, but for those who may not know, can you give us a basic explanation? of um, what loan level pricing adjustment is. Absolutely. So loan level pricing adjustments, or LLPAs as they're commonly referred to, are simply risk-based pricing. So as you spoke about, you saw this and heard about this in the media over the last few months, and it became this big storm of this new thing, when in fact they've actually been in place since the housing crisis of 2008. So Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac had overexposed themselves to risk, which is how we got to the 2008 financial crisis. So these were put in place at that time. And if you've bought a home since then, you had one. You just maybe didn't know about it. (laughs) They're all just priced in. Is that right? They are. They are. So they've always been a part of it. And so these most recent changes just really updated what the prior charts have been. And there are some changes that are much different than they've been, but the media certainly likes to bring as much negativity to our housing market as they can. So let's take let's talk about the journey of how we got to this these new LLPAs sure. or, or the the adjustments to the LLPAs. Why are we having these adjustments now? Yeah, absolutely. So the prior structure that we had in place again, on risk-based pricing, essentially looked at the, quote, best borrower or client with their ability to repay would be someone with a 720 to 740 credit score with a 20% down payment. When in fact, going in and doing the research and looking into that, there weren't any more defaults on lower credit scores or lower down payments. So there were a lot of individuals and families who were facing substantial fees simply based on having a lower credit score or a lower down payment. So the intention behind making these changes was really to level that playing field. Uh, So the media, of course, makes sure to, you know, showcase that that made it more difficult for higher Uh, credit consumers when, in fact, they are not subsidizing that for 
lower credit score individuals by any means. That's that's what when it came out. It actually was a client who sent it to me and that, that their question was, so what's the National Association doing about this? Because they know that I'm involved at the National Association. Yes. But what they sent me was a TikTok of a guy just ranting and <laughs> raving about all of the people that they've worked so hard with their high credit score. Now we're having to carry the weight. You know, we're just turning into a socialist com- com- uh, country and all of this stuff. And so then I was like, what even is that? Like That was literally my first introduction to this. And I've sure. grown up in the industry. And I was like, I've literally never heard of this concept. And when you start Googling it, everything coming up first was just, again, all mm-hmm. of those people that have worked so hard. And now we're carrying the weight for those that didn't do the right thing. And so why are we? Let's talk a little bit more about the actual facts of higher, uh, better credit score, sure. paying a little bit more, and lesser credit scores paying a little bit less, but that it's not actually that the lower credit scores are actually paying less. Correct. Yes. So the most recent changes, and there are some heat maps that you may see online that will actually show you in red and green which subsets had those changes. But in general, I always like to just affirm that higher credit score clients are not being charged more so that lower credit score clients can pay less. This just leveled the playing field. So what they've really done is added additional tiers. So where 720 to 740 was top tier credit on the last column, new column is 780 or higher. So they've really just expanded that and leveled that playing field. Um, So when we talk about what these adjustments are, you'll see them as percentages. So for instance, a 1.75% price adjustment. Well, a lot of the media took that to mean you're getting an interest rate from a 6% to a Mm 7.75%, which it's not. It's actually incorporated as part of the interest rate. Makes perfect sense, actually. Absolutely. (laughs) So, so Wait, common sense could be applied here? (laughs) What? So here's here's, uh, one of the questions that I got a lot looking at those heat maps. It appears as though – you're right. Uh, the people that have a higher credit score, people that are putting more down, they are no—they are not paying any more than somebody on the that has a lower credit score is putting less down. But there is one little pocket mm-hmm. that's green yep. that you don't necessarily expect, where somebody's putting a little bit less down. And it's actually a slightly better rate. Am I seeing that correctly? Yes. So maybe a 10% uh, and and a great credit score, they, it's actually a slightly better deal. Can you explain that just a little bit? Absolutely. Right. So, of course, when we're putting less than 20% down on conventional loans, there is private mortgage insurance that's part of that. So that's kind of this, you know piece that a lot of people are concerned about and maybe think is much more expensive than it actually is. So one of those pockets, if you will, um, is that 20% down. So putting less money down can actually give you a better interest rate. Some of that comes into place that they're adding in that mortgage insurance. So that helps give a little bit of a break on the rate. Um, So that's something that I personally talk and look at options with every single client, especially in our current economy. 20% is great, but I've had clients surprised that mortgage insurance might be $35, and now we get to keep 
$25,000 to yeah. upgrade a bathroom or all of the moving expenses that come with settling into a house. I have even seen some load officers recommend that people put 10% down sure. uh, up front with the idea that they put the remaining 10% down li- or in later in recast just mm-hmm. to have that slightly better rate and sure. have the mortgage insurance drop off after a certain period of time. So is that something that you would... Um, Obviously, we don't want to give people specific advice on this podcast, but is that something that you would advise people to ask their loan officer about in the current market? Absolutely. I think that's one of the most important points of loan level pricing adjustments right now. Whether you are a client or a real estate agent, having a lending partner who truly understands this and what the impact can be. Um, So this is something that I personally review with every client so that they know they have options. Um, You can certainly recast, which is applying large principles after. Um, You can look at all varying types of down payments, and especially right now when we still are seeing appraisal gaps and also large equity gains in Johnson County, most clients aren't carrying mortgage insurance for that full, you know, 10 years if they're putting a minimum down payment. So you brought up the concept of recast, and Mm -hmm. you Mm -hmm. talked about it a little bit. Explain for those who have never heard of recasting a loan, and maybe they've been living under a rock. However, that's also just not a concept that gets talked about a lot in the lending world. Explain a little bit about uh, recasting versus doing a refinance. Yeah, I will call out my industry on this one. You know, um, y'all don't like it for some reason. Um, I love a recast. <laughs> I uh, that's something I'm very vocal on social uh-huh. media about. Of course, loan officers get paid twice if they get a refinance. Uh So a lot of the, you know, uh, responses can be like, oh, just refinance later. So I always like to remind clients that that's not a necessity. Uh, A recast is an option. And again, it will depend on your investor. So uh, not blanket advice, but generally it's a large principal payment that can be applied and it re-amortizes your loan. So let's say you had a $10,000 bonus Uh, Your clients got married and had $30,000. Most people would hold on to those funds and wait until rates were better to recast, but you can actually call and apply those uh, principal payments and it will adjust your payment. So now maybe instead of $2,100, we can be closer to $1,950 and you can also have PMI removed as part of that process. So and PMI can only be removed after a certain amount of time. Can you remind people how long it needs to it stay? It actually depends on the investor. Does so there okay. are some investors that will allow PMI removal once the first payment has been made. Oh, so nice. it's a great option for clients that maybe are selling a home yeah. and wanting to buy before putting their house on the market, especially in our current environment. So they may only have PMI for a short period great. and then take those proceeds and recast and feel better about their lower mortgage payment. Well, that was the exact example I was going to bring up is I just recast my loan. Um, And I literally, I've been in the industry since I was eight. Okay, so this is embarrassing to admit, (laughs) but I had not heard about it until I went to purchase my last home. And I was trying to decide between doing a swing loan because I wasn't ready to sell my other house. I want to get moved over, do a few projects, then sell my other home. And am I going to do a swing loan? Should I pull some money out of my investment account to come up with the 20% down, what should I do? And my loan officer was like, it's no big deal, Bobby, we'll just recast. And I was like, well, what is what is, <laughs> what is this? And so I ended up putting 5% down, closed on my house around th- 
Thanksgiving, uh, the one I was purchasing. And then early March, I closed on my other house and I took all of that equity and then we recast. My PMI is gone. My payment got lowered. All of those things. And I was like, and I, but I didn't have to go through all of the paperwork and doing a full refinance. And because interest rates still haven't quite, because because I bought in November, interest rates were a little <laughs> high then. I'm still waiting for that five and a half, you know, to show back up the end of sure. this year, beginning of next year, wherever it shows up. <laughs> then I'll do a full refinance. But for now, I went ahead and, and recast. And it was just such an amazing process that I'd never heard of. And it was like, why are we not talking about this more? Why are we not using this amazing tool more yes. for those people in this market that says, I want to buy this house now, but I'm not quite ready to sell my house, but I have enough to make a 5% down payment, sure. just not the full 20. Absolutely. It's a common concern, especially in this market, until you are actually under contract on the new house, you know, especially if you have young kids, the idea of trying to facilitate both of those is a lot. Um, and it's also a great option in my personal opinion. I'm a huge proponent of seller credits. You're still seeing a lot with rate buy downs. And so it can be a great option for clients that secured that. And now they don't have to worry about losing a lower interest rate through a seller credit because they can adjust their payment. That's very good point, actually. I think Bobby brings up a good point, too, um, and that's that we have really gone a little bit overboard on preaching uh, about the uh, ability to refi when rates get lower. <laughs> um, I think that um, we're uh, a little bit negligent in, in thinking that the average consumer understands how to manage their own finances. Sure. And I'm serious. No, you're, no I'm, and, and I'm laughing because it, you are absolutely right. We're getting to the point with some of this credit card debt that people mm-hmm. are accumulating that when rates do come down, I, I've got a significant fear that people that think that they're going to be able to refi to a lower rate are going to have so much credit card debt, they will have overextended on cars because we all like to do that in the United States because we're morons. And I, I'm a little bit concerned about uh, people actually being able to refinance. So while we have you, yeah, I'd like to go down a little bit of a different tangent other than let's the do it. So, so when you're uh, going through applications right now, mm-hmm. uh, do you see um, we're, we're seeing a lot of coverage again in the media about about sure. uh, overextension of of credit, right? So, uh, are you seeing people uh, overusing their credit cards uh, more frequently uh, than than you have? And do you see that as a growing risk for uh, people moving forward? Sure, absolutely. I think it is a really important component. You know, when we look at a client who wants to buy a home, whether they're selling or it's their first time purchase, we always go through and look at what their current debts are. We certainly are seeing higher credit card utilization right now. We know that inflation has continued to be high. Costs are much higher than they've been in the past. And it's really difficult, you know, as a myself a young family when you have you know childcare mm-hmm. cost and grocery bills like it is a lot more than it's ever been and so we still haven't really seen you know income catch up to that point yet um, and so a lot of this higher credit card utilization car payments are huge average car payment in America is over seven hundred dollars so a month. Um, That's me. I mean, I, yeah, yeah, and it's, and it, it's insane to me because I've never had a car payment where it's at now. And I'm just like, this is an insane amount of money for a car. Sure. Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting to me because, you know, in a typical market, most individuals or families stay in their home anywhere from two to seven years. So we have a lot of conversations around six and seven percent interest rates, Hmm. but not 
9% on a car, which right. now we have six and seven year car loans, mm-hmm. and 22% on credit cards. So a lot of that is really being willing to have that conversation with clients. How can we put you in the best possible financial situation? Um, I have never uttered the words uh, date the rate, marry the house. Oh, I thank never you. Will. So, like, oh, it's so risky. Ble- it is. And, and it I, is. Think, I think people are, have, we've all been throwing that around mm. across our industry. It's a huge mistake, a huge mistake. Not everybody's going to be able to do that. They better be damn comfortable with their payment when they yes. buy. Yeah. I'm a huge advocate of education and particularly, um, again, I am a huge fan of permanent seller credits and permanent Mm buy-downs. You know, one of my biggest fears when we talk about temporary Mm buy-downs, you know, sure, it's great. We save eight or nine hundred dollars year one and I look at young couples and think what happens when they spend that baby that comes exactly. year yeah. two and now oh our payment's going up nine hundred dollars but we're also adding you know in Johnson County twelve to fifteen hundred dollars a month for child care so really taking that time to connect with clients and talk about what the future looks like because this is a large financial decision and yes, we had great equity gains, yeah. massive in Johnson County, but that's not something that we are projecting to see at that same rate uh, moving forward. On that same note, let's talk really quickly about student loan payments uh, having to start back up. I know that you all have been pricing those in, right? Sure. You've been creating a like a ghost payment line, even though they haven't been paying it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but like you just talked about, when people have... Um, when, when people feel like they have a little bit more room in their budget, even if when they f- apply for a loan, if they haven't occupied that room in their budget, they eventually do. They figure Absolutely. out some way to use these these funds that they're not having to pay and they obligate themselves to certain things. I'm a little bit concerned about the um, – yeah, we talked mm-hmm. about the average car payment. The average student loan payment, once they start back up, is $350 a month, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, can you talk – I've heard a little bit of fear in the realtor community about what uh, student loan payments starting back up uh, might do to uh, prospective home buyers. Can you just speak to that a little bit and if there's sure. actually something to be concerned about there? Yeah, absolutely. So from a lending perspective, currently when student loans are in deferment, when we're reviewing a credit report, that payment will show as zero. From a lending perspective, we automatically have to qualify with a student loan payment. So there are a couple components depending upon the loan program that you go with. So typically it's either a half to 1% of the loan balance unless a client is in an income-based repayment plan. So that would be one of my suggestions as we're looking at student loan payments coming back in place is to make sure if you have these, you're communicating with Uh, your student loan companies to see if there is a plan that you can get on um, because that can help on the payments. Um, So we have to qualify with them. um, And based on what has come out thus far, that shouldn't impact us too much um, because typically most payments are less than what we use to qualify. But it is something that, you know, people are thinking of them as zero and they will not be for forever. (laughs) Following along this conversation of talking about credit credit cards, yeah. school loans, all of those things, when we historically look at mortgage originations and people's credit scores, yeah. people have higher credit scores now than they ever had before. Mm-hmm. And historically, 
much higher credit people scores are getting those loans. However, I believe that because we have people walking around, I've got an 820 credit score. Mm -hmm. Well, basically everybody has an 820 credit score. (laughs) So what are some of the dangers that we have right now with everybody being, for lack of a better word, being a little cocky about having these really high credit scores and how good we're doing? And I think some of that leads to some of this overextension of credit Mm -hmm. because they're just like, well, I'm fine. And we've been I got a 40K limit. And that's the thing is we've been taught to go use those Mm -hmm. lines of credit, but Mm -hmm. as long as you're paying them on them regularly, that's bumping up your credit score. So I think we've inherently built ourselves and told ourselves, well, it's okay because I'm just improving my credit score by extending myself. And buying depreciating assets with them. (laughs) They're not talking about depreciating assets. (laughs) It's not that they're idiots. I'm sorry. It's the majority of Americans, but it's like it's a serious – they they need Ramsey in their lives. They need to find – Find financial well, Jesus. I don't know. If they need Ramsey, but they need <laughs> they need something, but not necessarily Ramsey. Um, but what do you say to those people who are just walking around with their credit score, thinking I can just do whatever I want? Yeah, you know, I don't run into that too often, to be honest. I Good. think you know, for me, why I'm particularly passionate about loan level pricing adjustments, especially when there are conversations about lower credit score clients, I try to come at it from an empathetic point. Mm-hmm. How do most people understand credit? Where do they learn about credit? We don't have credit education in, I never had it in my Florida public school system. No one talked about it. So sure, I have clients that come in at 26 with great credit because their parents added them as authorized users to their American Express that they paid off. And so they've never had to carry credit. Mm -hmm. And now we have a generation who didn't fully understand the ramifications of student loan payments, medical collections, that Mm -hmm. is the number one impacting factor on credit scores. And so we like to blame lower credit score clients, and yet oftentimes they are being penalized for things they can't control. An emergency room visit for their four-year-old seven years ago that Mm -hmm. up until last year remained as a negative derogatory mark on their credit. So I'm incredibly passionate about having those conversations with every client, you know, based on their credit, what they can do. And we talk about this is how credit scores are calculated. This is what you're seeing on Credit Karma. This is why it's different when we're pulling, you know, your mortgage. And there's just, unfortunately, a lot of information around that. Credit is a necessary component, but I think there's such a broader conversation that needs to be had because, you know, yeah, just pay it off every month in full. Well, we have inflation and, you know, job loss. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a lot that's been happening in our economy. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of negativity towards higher credit card balances. And I see it from a lot of families that surely just thank goodness they had that to be able to navigate, you know, Now, in terms of medical debt, we've made yeah. some headways on that in the lending community, right? Thankfully. So can you talk a little bit about that? It's it's better than it was, right? Yeah, absolutely. So that was one of the biggest issues is if you had a paid medical collection, that remained as a negative mark on your credit for seven years. So if you moved addresses and missed an ER bill or you got billed from someone that was out of network, whatever that may be, that was incredibly uh, impactful on credit scores. So that was actually removed last year, which is fantastic. So those negative derogatory marks will no longer negatively impact um, credit scores. 
which is good. That's really good. Yeah. yeah. Now, that was that retroactive? Did that improve their credit score retroactively as well? Is it, could it look back and wipe those away and their score went up? Typically, for most clients, we would see improvement once those kind of fell off because Excellent. otherwise it would be almost active, right. if you will, which right. seven years, I mean, it's right. a long time. <laughs> a long time. <laughs> so. So, you know, let's take it back to LLPAs. Yeah. What are some things that um, agents need to know to best serve their clients? Sure. And because, you know, we talked about who's most likely been affected by this. Well, on some level, everybody has (laughs) been affected by this without them even knowing. So how can we best serve our clients, especially if they've heard what's in the news and they're freaking out or just even just giving them information that going forward? Sure. Absolutely. My number one advice is to make sure that you have a lending partner that fully understands what this means and is taking the time to collaborate with your clients on what their options are. One of the biggest components of these uh, new adjustments, and this got completely overlooked in the media, is that these are actually waived for any buyers who are using uh, Home Ready or Home Possible, which are Fannie and Freddie Mac's 3% down first-time homebuyer program. And that has an area median income or the AMI of 80%. So, you know, depending upon where you're looking in Kansas City, Johnson County versus, uh, you know, Jackson County, typically that's between, you know, 80 to 96,000. So that, if your client qualifies, actually they don't have any loan level pricing adjustments. So that's a big one because as a lender, we're looking at the whole picture. Can we remove a spouse or remove income to be able to qualify for one of these programs? Um, and a lot of clients hear first-time home buyer and they think, well, I bought that house 10 years ago. If you've not bought a primary residence uh, in the last three years, so if you sold five years ago, you're a first-time home buyer again. I always forget about that, too. I, yeah. I know I know that, but I always forget about it. So, like, it's, oh, yeah, that's right. That's a thing. You're, yeah. you're a first-time homebuyer <laughs> again. Yes, absolutely. And I think credit, as we touched on, is also very important. Um, I review credit with every client, and a lot of that is we have options, especially for clients that have maybe a larger down payment. Um, there are options to do what's known as a rapid rescore which is 24 to 48 hours, they can see, I've seen improvements from 10 points to 80 points. So now that could, you know, take out a huge part of whatever that adjustment is. So it definitely takes a little more work. It's not as easy as just putting a pre-approval letter out there. Um, But my hope is that that puts, you know, consumers and clients and families in a much better position moving forward. So, Shelby, we're coming up towards the end of our time, and we want to be respectful of the time that we have of you, of what we've asked of you. So the last question that I always ask all of our guests is, what else? What else should we have asked you? What else should we be talking about? What else do our listeners need to know? Ooh. In anything in the mortgage industry or just about Shelby? I I don't even care at this point. (laughs) Um. That's such a great question, and I knew you asked that, so I should have asked more. Um, you know, I think it's not the right time for everyone. Yeah, yeah. and I thank I you for saying. Think yeah. that's okay, and I just—it's really difficult right now for all of us, mm-hmm. real estate lending it, families. Um, you know, we're in a great area, but we have lack of inventory, mm-hmm. and so. Um, I think my encouragement would just be to, uh, you know, 
we'll get through this, but yeah. it may not be the right time for everyone. Um, and that's okay. Such yeah. an important point. Yeah. To add on to that is I have a friend who lives over on the East Coast. She's been a renter her entire life. She thought she would forever be a renter mm -hmm. and purchased a, a home just a few months ago. And just every day you see her posting that homeownership's a lie. Homeownership mm -hmm. is dumb because she's moved into that. They didn't have an inspection because they were in multiple offers. They did all this. And they've gotten into a home that has a lot of issues. And they've just blown through their entire savings. Yeah. And she's a prime example of someone that it just wasn't the right time for her. But mm -hmm. it's completely soured her homeownership experience. And she's ready to go live in an RV literally for the rest of her life. Ugh. And that just... It breaks my heart that someone had that experience because homeownership is so important. But she sure. keeps having these posts of homeowners convince me that I'm wrong. It's like everybody, you know, she's just she is angry and bitter mm -hmm. and and it wasn't the right time for her. So thank you for saying that because it's not the right time for everybody. No, it's and not. renting isn't inherently bad. No. I I no. just don't I don't get behind the message of like renting is stupid. Renting can be the right choice for the right time for someone. Absolutely. Um, and I think right now, you know, we all in our industry have a fiduciary responsibility to our clients. And maybe it means that we're not going to close on that this month. Mm -hmm. But my hope is that building these relationships of trust will add to longer lasting relationships and referrals moving forward. Um, and I think that's imperative. Just because it's not the right time for somebody doesn't mean that they don't aspire to have it in the future. Mm -hmm. And Absolutely. that's what we have to remember. Yeah. 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 Shelby, thank you for your time today. Thanks you have just been me. a breath of fresh air, and I just absolutely <laughs> enjoy getting to know you today. Aww. So maybe we'll have to have you back on again sometime when something else is going strange in the mortgage industry. You know, uh, <laughs> I, you know it might continue. Yeah, Who I knows? Like, I have a I feeling think... that we're not out of this yet. So. Yeah, yeah, no. And I think it might be a little bit, but I'm always happy to share. Um, and if there's anything I can um, cover or educate on, I'm more than happy to do that. Absolutely. So Love it. Awesome. Thanks, Thanks Shelby. Guys. Thank you. Thank you.